is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm Rachel Neal. And I'm James Ramsey. All Festival Long WNYC is bringing you exclusive coverage of the talks and panels featuring some of the biggest names in film today. We'll hear from the likes of Janine Garofalo, Gus Van Zandt, and Christian Slater about the projects that have fans most excited. Up next, a deep look at the intersection of secrecy and power. On a mission to find the facts. The vice president has received a report concerning the purchase of material to build nuclear weapons. We need to get in close. They turn to her husband for answers. It is my opinion. A sale that size could not have happened. I have teams in the field. They're all saying the same thing. But when the truth was made public... What do you think the White House wants to hear, huh? There was no nuclear program. We need to change the story. They made her pay the price. Valerie, your name is in the paper. It says you're a CIA agent. Wow, Rachel, being a spy sounds really stressful. That's from the movie Fair Game, which is based on the true story of this woman, Valerie Plame. I've served the United States loyally and to the best of my ability as a covert operations officer for the Central Intelligence Agency. That was Valerie Plame testifying before Congress after her cover was blown. And today, we'll hear Valerie Plame in a slightly lower-stakes environment testifying on a panel at the Tribeca Film Festival along with director Alex Gibney, who recently made the documentary Going Clear about Scientology. And he also made the movie We Steal Secrets, the story of WikiLeaks. James, I'm turning off my cell phone for this one. Good idea. I'm moving to Montana. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the 14th Annual Tribeca Film Festival. We're so happy to have you guys all here as part of our festival community. Thanks for taking time out of your day to come hang out with us. I am the head of panels programming. My name's Mara, and I'm so excited for this program today. You're going to see some amazing things and get to hear some really fascinating discussion topics, if I can base anything on what these guys were all just talking about in the green room just now. We're actually going to do something a little bit untraditional today with Secrecy and Power, and we're going to start with a brief presentation from a professional hacker who is going to show you how easy it is to access information about yourselves. So don't be scared. None of your phones have been hacked and you don't know about it. It's totally fine. Please welcome the ethical hacker. Hello, hello, hello. All right. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, especially with these folks. Um, so your phones haven't been hacked yet. That's what she failed to mention. Um, all right, so what I'm going to do up here is kind of talk a little bit about hacking because at the end of the day, when we talk about secrecy and power and the kind of power that we have, um, it really a lot of it has to do with computers and what we can do with computers. So first of all, who, who are hackers? Okay, well, this is a, kind of a top-level or high-level way for me to explain what a hacker is. Uh, there's people who know and do, and then there's people who know but don't do, then we got people who don't know and don't do. Uh, and then we got people who don't know but do. Okay, so that makes up the entire planet. You're one of those four types of people. And the two types that make up hackers are people who know and do and people who don't know but do. That's, that's basically the best way to put it. Now, if you look up in the dictionary the meaning of a hacker, you'll see that it says an expert in programming and solving problems. On the other hand, it also says a person who engages in an activity without skill or talent. That's a little confusing, but that's the truth. And so in reality, hackers are creative people too. And uh, we look at solving problems in different ways. So as you can see these guys down here, we got the guy with the hatchet. He made a robot. It's not quite a working robot. 
And the other guy who knows and does was able to make a working robot. So, you know, I, I think a, a great line that I heard um, in a recent movie was sometimes it's the people who no one imagines anything of who do the things that no one can imagine. And uh, oftentimes you'll meet a 12 year old kid who can hack into some major infrastructure. Again, nobody would ever expect that. Now, ethics, that comes up all the time because the ethical hacker is kind of an oxymoron thing to call yourself. But um, the term hacker uh, is, is generally attributed to a book by Stephen Levy back in 1984 uh, called Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution. And basically, it has to do with the main principles of a hacker include sharing, openness, and this is important as we're talking about secrets. Um, the decentralization, free access to computers, and world improvement. In fact, the uh, six things specifically is access to computers and anything which might teach you something about the way the world works should be unlimited in total. All information should be free. And this is, this is the hacker ethic. Uh, mistrust authority promote decentralization. Hackers should be judged by their hacking, not, uh, not criteria such as degrees, age, race, sex, religion. And uh, you can create art and beauty on a computer, and ultimately computers can change your life for the better. That's the hacker ethic. So when you think about secrets, it kind of goes a bit against the hacker ethic, right? Um, this is important. Now, let's go directly into the methodology of a hacker. And the main thing I'll talk about in here is, well, first you define the target, whether this is state-sponsored or personal. This is pretty much the same thing. So define the target. Then we're going to build tools, uh, basically find and organize everything that we need. And then we get into intelligence gathering. Pretty much the same exact thing. Once we gather enough intelligence about a target, then we start testing some things and ultimately start deploying these tools and hacks, exploits, so on and so forth, right? So remember, the very first thing is this intelligence gathering phase. Uh, we don't ever attack anything without knowing enough about it. And one of the main things about hackers is that uh, we like to learn fast. So we creatively learn about something very deep and very quickly uh, to then go after it, right? So where do you think we can start hacking? Where do we learn about stuff these days? Good old Google, right? So Google is one of these places where we do all kinds of different things, not only learn, but we can actually do some hacks. And they're, 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 they're really not exactly hacks, but they are... Uh, methods of gathering information. Now, I'm, I'm going to show you a couple of different things that I did up here. And I'm going to start with this one, since uh, it's topical. Um, I love doing this one whenever I'm speaking to uh, the military or federal government, because uh, if you notice, I put something into Google that says site.mil file type doc classified. And what that tells Google to do is search the entire web that Google knows about. Um, for Word documents that have the word classified in the document. That doesn't mean that the title is classified. That means that the word classified is inside the document. And if you notice up there, it says 3,200 Word documents have been indexed by Google, all at military websites that have the word classified in them. Now, I wouldn't expect the first page of Google here to show me a classified document. However, the first page of Google does have things like classified information access authorization form, defense contracting command, Washington, the purpose of this guide is to provide general, and it's basically information for contractors about how to deal with classified information, the security requirements for contracts, so on and so forth. So even in the first page of Google, I could learn a lot about how 
classified information is being handled. Um, the other is, I know this is kind of crazy, you're not going to believe this, but looking at Excel files for passwords. And so I did this and found a few interesting ones. Uh, found a little Excel spreadsheet which has some passwords. Don't nobody go after these poor people, but um, there you go, there's lots of passwords. Again, this is uh, not exactly hacking since uh, I didn't have to break anything. Um, I didn't have to break into anything at all. Google just found it for me. Uh, here we got some more passwords. Um, so, and there's even more back here. I found a Chinese one, if anybody wants to go out to the Chinese. Uh, we've got those two. So the other example I've got up here, I like to use it on a talk that I do called Hacking Hollywood, because Hollywood, as you guys know, Sony kind of had a little problem recently. And uh, this is actually, uh, I did a, a same kind of thing, but for Warner Brothers, looking for Word documents with Harry Potter in them. And you're thinking, okay, well, what is that going to do? Well, in this case, this Word document here, if I was a hacker, which I am, I'd like to go after, I have to basically footprint the organization I'm going after, determine how big their, their uh, size and scope is and find servers and such. So if I know nothing about Raincloud, raincloud.warnerbrothers.com. wonder what raincloud.warnerbrothers.com is. So now, by the way, it just has some very high-quality versions of pieces of Harry Potter sitting at Raincloud. And if you look further into Raincloud, it actually hosts a whole bunch of uh, content for Warner Brothers. And just the same way I've done these, I've, I have found the uh, back-end portals to many of Hollywood studios. Um, again, we've got some more examples here uh, of finding, if you notice here, it's pdl.warnerbrothers.com. So I'm learning more about more and more hosts and servers to attack, uh, all from Google. Right? So that's, uh, you guys can use Google this way too. It's real, real simple. Um, it's called Google Dorks. And if you Google the GHDB, which stands for the Google Hacking Database, um, you will find it's uh, documented by them. Now, the issue with technology is that we, we tend to trust technology a bit much. And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of a problem. Uh, one of the biggest problems is that we tend to trust technology. Okay, so, in fact, in today's world, uh, especially in Hollywood, um, it's all bring your own device. Every movie, everybody's on set, everybody's got their own personal devices, or it's a lease device. Uh, the ubiquity of, of mobile devices, uh, you know, it's, it's just everywhere. Everybody's got at least two different devices, right? So everything is becoming the Internet of Things, as they call it, which is everything is being interconnected to the Internet now. So mobile devices, Wi-Fi, obviously, well, these are in some ways even more vulnerable to attack than their counterparts, desktops and laptops, because very simply, you don't have the real estate that you have on a laptop. So things like the URL in your browser, in your phone, is a lot easier for me to spoof and make you think that you're at Wells Fargo, but you're not. So that's just one example of it. So again, we tend to trust mobile just way too much. So uh, an example of this is something that, that uh, you know, researchers, as we call ourselves, uh, have done uh, since 2007. In fact, uh, I did this to a reporter early in 2007 um, kind of freaked them out, and uh, you'll, you guys will see what we do. So I need a volunteer from the audience. Somebody? Anybody? We got a volunteer back there? All right. All right, so you're going to come up here. 
bike check. And again, the, again, keep this in mind when, when it comes to the word trust and technology. So um, I'm going to have you give me your phone number. You have your cell phone with you? Yes, I do. All right, cool. You've got a brand new iPhone, folks. Um, what's your name? Reed. Reed. Reed, thanks for coming up here. All right, so what's your number? Uh, 941. Everybody writing this down? Yeah. <laughs> 456. All right. And then give me any number you know by heart. Uh, 941-855. All right. So generally speaking, phone numbers are, not, are relatively simple for us to find in many ways. So figuring out in that intelligence gathering phase how, how to find somebody's phone number is not all that difficult. Um, takes a little time, but we can do it. So hopefully your phone will be ringing here. And is it ringing? All right, now look at it. And who's calling you? My dad. <laughs> All right, answer it, dude. Your dad is calling you. Hey, Dad. Hey, honey, it's your mom. <laughs> now, I want you to put it on speaker and put the microphone next to it so people can hear what it says. Hey, honey, it's your mom. Hey, honey, it's your mom. Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> so, Dad sounds like mom. Dad right now. sounds like mom. So would you, if you got a call from your dad's number, you trust that the phone says it's your dad, and let's just say that I said, hey, your dad's been in, involved in an accident in, uh, on Lexington and 46th, and uh, I've got his phone, and I need you to show up here right away. Would you show up? I certainly would. And then I could just knock you over the head, throw you in a van, and call your dad and say, you've got to pay me some money. So why? Just because how simply you trust technology. So, hey, thanks for coming up, dude. Thank you. Your phone's fine. I didn't do anything. Thanks a lot. Okay. You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from Valerie Plame on secrecy and power. So the biggest thing here is that compromises as far as computers, this is kind of alarming. 31% of victims discovered, uh, well, two things. First of all, do you realize that the current... Reports say that the average time to realize that you've been hacked is 229 days. So when we talk about Sony and things like that, they weren't hacked a week or two before. They were hacked a long time before they found out. And 69% of the time, they find out because of an external party letting them know that they've been hacked. Sony didn't find out they were hacked because their IT department found out. They found out because they came into work and it said, you've been hacked. Okay, uh, Target didn't find out because their IT department found it. It's because the credit card processor said, you've been hacked. So it's almost entirely always from a third party. Average time to resolve a hack, 27 days. How long do you think it's uh, taken Sony? Months, and they're still not up to speed. Um, so keep that in mind. The current, current number they're throwing around is the average cost per company is $7.2 million per hack. Some more crazy numbers. To, uh, 25%, more than 25% of all Americans have been hacked, okay? Uh, it's almost entirely about financial, for, for financial motivation. Um, and we're going to talk about things like state-sponsored uh, hacks up here, but for the most part, hacks today are financially motivated, and if they're not financially motivated, they're for trolling purposes. Um, I call Sony the biggest troll of all time because somebody trolled them hard. And if you don't know what trolling is, Google it. Um, Social security numbers, 94 million social security numbers have been 
put out on the internet. Uh, hacking for dummies, 78% of these hacks can be done uh, by a novice hacker, if you will. Um, and like I said, 69%. So let's, let's, let me show you some old school hacking here. What's the password? Password? No. One, two, three, four, five. No. Do you have a dog? Yeah, her name's Muffin. There's a password, Muffin. Yes, it is. Come on in. You gotta love adults. You gotta love adults then. Um, now, as crazy as this sounds, this still works. This is what we call hacking wetware. So you've got hardware, and you've got software, and then there's us. We're wet on the inside, so we're the wetware. And we are the weakest link in the entire hacking world and all of this stuff that's going on. It's not about the hardware. It's not about the software. It's about us. Email is the biggest threat. Okay? Um, spam goes up and down. Now it's no longer just about spam. This is weaponized email, ways to get into your accounts for the most part. right? So 81% of all email, and these numbers go up and down, is spam. Okay? So most of our inboxes are not actually filled with our friends' uh, emails. The other rising problem is ransomware. I'm sure some of you have heard of ransomware, where things like CryptoLocker, they take over your computer, they encrypt your hard drive, and then you've got to pay if you want your computer back. Even as a forensic expert, I can decrypt that. So if this happened on, for example, one of the, say, many editing bays while in the middle of filming something, you've got a real problem, because it's all lost. Or you pay the $350 and give me your credit card. Um, so this is social engineering. This is manipulating the people. So a few days ago, uh, knowing that I was going to come here, I sent this uh, PayPal email, and I want to kind of just show you uh, kind of the, the purpose of this was just really to get them to, so I can see what this person's browser was um, and what email client they were using. So whenever anything having images gets loaded on your computer, it actually reports back to a server, and in this case, that was me. So I figured out. First, I, I, I got a target, which happens to be a, an intern for a person who works at Tribeca. So I emailed them this. I figured out, okay, this is their browser. This is the kind of computer they're using. All of that stuff is already being reported when that image loads. And then I sent them an email. And that email, I've gotten rid of the names to protect the innocent. Um, and I said, hey, John, I need you to take a look at this video as soon as possible and give me your thoughts uh, on using it. And there's a link to a video. And then, of course, the very important confidential information on the bottom, right? Um, I'll tell you what happened in just a minute. I'll also show you another major hack that also recently um, hit a bunch of major Hollywood studios, including Sony. And it was, hey, I've got a video for you to look at. I've got some content for you to look at. And this is the page you ended up at. And then everybody thought, hey, click on login, log in with your email, put in your email address and password. And that actually then redirected you to a wealth management website. So they got your email and password. And this worked on hundreds of executives in Hollywood. So let's do this. Um, so like I said, I, I emailed this person. They clicked on the video. And uh, when they clicked on the video, what actually happened was that uh, it installed a Trojan. You've heard of a Trojan, right? Like a Trojan horse. We call them rats or remote administration tools. And uh, this is what the remote administration tool does. So now you get to see what a hacker sees. There's many of these rats. Just based on the fact that this person was still using an XP machine. Um, so oh, they're, looking at the, uh, they're currently looking at what's going on at Tribeca right now. 
Um, this is screenshots of what they're doing. I can look at all their files. I can search through their files. I can look at what's on their CD, if they've got anything in there. All right. Obviously, they're on a Dell. Um, and everything that you see here on the left, from uh, you know, very technical stuff, which will allow me to even get uh, access to other things, to um, you know, access to devices such as, hey, look at that. I can turn on their microphone without their knowledge. Or I can turn on their webcam without their knowledge, if they have one. Not the best looking guy, but hey, I'm sure he's a good intern. Um, and you can see that the reason this is doing it this way is because it's a very stealthy little tool so that it doesn't use additional bandwidth. They can't really tell that it's on there. And uh, if you know what you're doing, uh, you basically can make this bypass all of the antivirus software that exists. So this is pretty much how you hack somebody. And uh, whether it's the federal government or whether it's me, it's really this simple uh, for the most part. And a lot of us are just not aware. So this talk is really more about awareness, and I think that's what's important here. And it's also about resilience. Uh, that's really what I keep telling people. It's not about protection. There is no such thing as protection as we know it. Uh, in the digital world, the truth is we have to learn to build resilience. And what that means is you have to be able to operate even though you've been hacked. Okay, so the faster you detect that you've been hacked, the less of an impact it will have on your company, on your life, and so on. And that's, that's where we really lack, is detection. We just don't have a lot of detection. Now, a lot of you are filmmakers or um, writers and so on. Words have a lot of power, and you have the power to bring more knowledge about these issues. You have, more, uh, you have a lot of power um, to bring this to the foreground and make this something we can all somewhat understand. And I think that's really the, the big issue. A lot of us just don't understand the issues at hand. So with that, I thank you guys for Give me the time and welcome everybody else on. Please welcome to stage our moderator, Cynthia McFadden, Bart Gelman, Alex Gibney, Valerie Plame, and again, the ethical hacker. to try to talk about in the next uh, 45 minutes or so is uh, who gets to keep their secrets and who gets to decide who gets to keep their secrets and whether or not there are any principles that apply across a variety of scenarios. And I, and I want to say we're going to look at four cases of secrets, um, Edward Snowden, uh, the WikiLeaks, the Sony hack, and what happened to Valerie back in 2003. Let's start with you, Valerie. <laughs> First of all, it's great to see you. Um, fair to say that your job at the CIA was to find out other people's secrets and to keep them, give them, share them with your colleagues in the government. Uh, good evening, Cynthia. First of all, thank you for coming. Uh, being on this panel Thanks, with man. everyone else is you a little intimidating. Yeah, but there's all different worlds out there. So yes, my, my expertise at the CIA was specifically in nuclear counterproliferation, which is making sure bad guys, whether they are terrorists or rogue nation states, do not get a nuclear capability. 
Uh, and that's what uh, the, the core mission of the Directorate of Operations does. That's, uh, they are recruiting foreign assets to provide hopefully really good intelligence to our senior U.S. policymakers. So I think we could all agree that sounds pretty important. It's useful. And I think we could all agree that that would be really hard to do without keeping secrets. Indeed. Um, it is, uh, discretion is paramount in what I did. Uh, the most important thing for me as an operations officer, besides the essence of the operation and the intelligence, was keeping my assets secure, uh, looking after their well-being. Uh, many of them were not Boy Scouts, as it is often said. That's true. But in many cases, they were taking incredible risks, sometimes truly putting their lives on the line, so that they would give intelligence uh, to the United States. And in this particular area of nuclear proliferation, I, I found it incredibly compelling. I mean, I think other than global warming, there is no other existential threat that we face. So let's just check with the panel. Important to do this work? Reasonable to keep the secret? Alex? Important to do this work. Reasonable to keep these secrets. But I would only add um, a cautionary note, which is, as we've seen um, from uh, the recent CIA torture report um, that came out of the Senate, uh, you know, sometimes keeping secrets are a way of hiding uh, damaging and sometimes criminal behavior. And so uh, one has to make sure that there's not a license to do that. The trick then is, is who gets to decide when those secrets shouldn't be kept, right? And we're going to come back to the whole Wikilinks kink, but you made a really powerful hats-off documentary looking closely at Julian Assange and others involved, and I think you'd be the first to say they were human with feet of clay. Well, they were, they were certainly human, and there were certainly issues and problems. But um, I, I, think, uh, I, I think to give Julian Assange credit, um, he leaked many secrets, which, at least in my personal opinion, and some people in government would say I don't have the right to <laughs> that opinion, but um, shouldn't have been kept secret. And, and, and maybe some that should have been. Perhaps. And, and I think certainly... He made uh, some very big mistakes, particularly in the publishing of the Afghan war logs, mm -hmm. about not properly redacting um, uh, people's names uh, that could have gotten them hurt. So far as we know, they didn't get hurt, but he was, in my view, reckless about how he went about publishing some of those names because, uh, you know, I think one of the first... It's like the physician's oath, do no harm. You have to be very careful that when you're leaking secrets that you're not causing somebody to be damaged or harmed. And I think he, in the first instance, in the Afghan war logs, he failed. In the, mm -hmm. in the Iraq war logs, they did a much better job of, of not doing that. Well, so. I want to come back and go into detail in sure. that case, but I mean, there is a sort of heart-stopping moment when he's asked in your film, is there any secrets? If, they, if you knew that how to poison this... The, the, the water supply of a town, right? Would you, yeah, would no, you? no, he was a... He was a yes, I'd publish, he says. Uh, information must be free. He was a secret-leaking absolutist. 
So we'll come back to that position. I want to just add to that, as well as uh, so much classified information that is kept because out of uh, corruption and so forth. It's also out of fear of embarrassment. But we're living in a world since post uh, post 9-11 world where about 5 million people have a security clearance. 1.5 approximately have a top secret. 1.5 million have a top secret security clearance. So is it any wonder to me the surprise is that thus far we only really know the names, the big names of Julian Assange or Ed, Edward Snowden. When you have, it's a numbers game. I think it's uh, absurd that we haven't had more, actually. But Valerie, mm. let me come back to your case. Would it have been possible for you to do the work you did if you weren't operating in secret? No. Uh, and the reason for that is, of course, uh, in many areas of the world, uh, cooperation with U.S. intelligence is a, a really dangerous game. There's the value, I, I'm a proponent and an advocate of a strong intelligence service. Obviously, I have a certain bias, uh, but it becomes... It's another channel. Uh, there's hopefully a strong, robust diplomatic channel, and there should be an, a strong, robust intelligence channel. You can be sure that as the Iran negotiations, which were just finished up in that framework, that those worked very closely together. It wasn't just enough to have Secretary Kerry and the various negotiators of the P5 plus one sitting across from their Iranian counterparts. You needed to have intelligence on that as well to supplement, to be able to push forward their, on each side, no doubt, their negotiating positions. Wait a minute, we know that you have 10,000 centrifuges at Nantes <coughs> and so forth. So back in 2003, um, as a keeper of secrets, someone revealed your secret that you were, in fact, That's a true. Spy. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to? Uh, uh, there has been much, much made of who actually did that uh, leaking. Um, Let me refresh your memory very briefly. What happened was I was a covert CIA operations officer in the run-up to the war with Iraq. I was the head of operations uh, in what was called the Joint Task Force. Essentially, my job was to be looking at the scientists that were in the presumed Iraqi WMD program, or well, who were the targets, what was their state of R&D, uh, how were they procuring the material, uh, what their financing looked like, because our intelligence on that was very, very thin. Uh, of course, we had closed our embassy in Baghdad after the first Gulf War. You may recall that Saddam Hussein uh, kicked out the UN weapons inspectors. So after 9-11 and the Bush administration clear, very quickly pivoted to Iraq because they made this specious argument about al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. That's a conversation for another time. But it was clear that there was uh, serious consideration about toppling the Iraqi regime based on the primary rationale that they had weapons of mass destruction. What happened was uh, that my husband, Joe Wilson, he was a, at that time a retired ambassador. He wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times. It appeared July 2003. It was entitled, What I Did Not Find in Africa. It referred to a trip he had taken at the request of the CIA and the office of the vice president a year previously about this alleged sale of 500 tons of yellow cake uranium from Niger to Iraq. If those reports were true, it would have been really important because it would have demonstrated that Saddam Hussein was, in fact, seeking to reconstitute his nuclear program. 
Joe had been debriefed upon his return. Those reports had gone back into the intelligence community uh, that said these reports are totally bogus. There's nothing to it. There's no way that this 500 tons of yellow cake uranium could have been transferred. So he wrote in the op-ed piece just that, because that was the central rationale of the Bush administration. And and I think it's fair to say that that was an administration that didn't take criticism well. And a week later, uh, a conservative columnist who's now gone, Robert Novak, wrote in his column that I was a covert CIA operations officer. And then we're off to the races. It turned out that it was, I mean, people thought that it was, it was Dick Cheney. It turned out not to have been Dick Cheney who was the source for this. Uh, at least well, that's I'll, what... I'll take exception to that. Uh, Dick Cheney was never indicted or convicted, but the special, <laughs> but the special, <laughs> I just got... Just my story. Uh, But uh, what happened was a special prosecutor in the case uh, said that there was an office over the cloud of the vice president. Uh, Scooter Libby was indicted, uh, convicted on four out of five counts, including obstruction of justice, perjury, uh, which is always such a nice legal term for lying. And uh, there's pretty much a consensus, except by those who are still fiercely um, defending uh, uh, the Bush administration, that, in fact, Cheney was uh, a primary motivator behind it because he didn't like Joe Wilson, who until that moment had pretty much been an establishment guy, choosing what I believe was a very vulnerable point in the Bush administration's war. This is July 2003. Uh, the combat operations are winding down, the insurgency is gaining traction, and there's no WMD being found. So at that particular vulnerable moment in time, you have Joe Wilson writing this op-ed piece in the New York Times, and uh, they decided to make the whole case about Valerie Plame and Joe Wilson rather than Although Richard Armitage, Richard Armitage later That's said true. that there he, leaked, that he leaked to Novak, who then confirmed that he was the original source and Karl Rove was the second source. Uh, however, it happened, and Richard Armitage said he didn't do it on purpose. It sort of popped out in his conversation. I know, with, because he'd hardly been around Washington much at all. And But <laughs> let me you ask know, you, Bart, if someone popped out with the name of a covert CIA operative, would that be something that you would write in the Washington Post? No, I mean, for, for lots of reasons. I suppose I, you, you could come up with a hypothetical in which that would be uh, relevant and newsworthy. But first of all, there's a law, uh, the Intelligence Identities Protection Act, uh, which forbids you to, uh, to disclose the name of a clandestine officer uh, if, 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 uh, if, if you know the person is, uh, has been in and clandestine service recently. But, but it, we wouldn't do it at the you Washington Post. It. I wouldn't do it personally. Uh, but I suppose you could come up with some hypothetical in which it would be relevant. I mean, there, look, there, there, to get to your earliest question, necessary secrets. There are some, you know, the identity of our, of our clandestine agents. I think there would be a fairly large consensus in this country that we ought to keep those secret. Um, the identities of their assets almost always um, are legitimate secrets. Uh, there has been a time, I mean, I... Decades ago, the Washington Post wrote the story that said that King Hussein was on the CIA payroll. And the President of the United States tried to persuade the Post not to do that. But we thought, they thought, I wasn't there, uh, that it was of sufficiently high sort of policy import, uh, public policy interest that they published it. Uh, But there are lots of things you could do on behalf of this legitimate mission. 
that I wouldn't call legitimate secrets. Let's suppose that some crazy person in your shop said, well, there's been new construction at the uh, nuclear facility at Tuatha. We don't know what's under the roof, but why don't we just pay someone to blow it up? If we, if we just plant a little bomb there, we can uh, remotely measure the uh, isotopic signatures, and then we'll know what's in there. And it's true that if there's something bad in there, then the village of Tuatha adjacent is going to be in for some real trouble and you know, lots of mm -hmm. excess cancer, but you know, let's do it. It's worth the trade-off. That would be a story I'd write in a heartbeat, uh, that the US government had decided in this crazy hypothetical to, uh, to kill civilians in pursuit of finding out about So one of the program. interesting questions is, who gets to make that decision, though? As a journalist, because you know where I'm going, which is, you know, Julian Assange gets to make the decision because he comes into the possession of the information, right? Whether his motive is to protect the world, uh, self-aggrandizement, to make money, whatever his motive may be, uh, he gets to reveal the secret, right? So we have a really complicated information ecosystem in this country, mm -hmm. and it's way more complicated than it's usually described. Uh, in fact, you know, when you talk about the millions of people who have clearances, uh, the vast majority of information that's classified, that gets into the public debate, right. uh, that gets leaked, is leaked uh, by people who uh, are in an official or semi-official capacity, who are trying to advance the interests of their political masters, who are bending the rules or breaking them. Uh, they're, 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 they're closer to plants than leaks. Uh, somebody's invented the term uh, pleaks. Uh, <laughs> but there are probably thousands a year of, of uh, secret facts, many of them classified, that get published in transactions like that. Right. Uh, now, then there's, there's the, they're the ones that are truly unauthorized, that are being done by people who are not working on behalf of the administration, who are trying to call attention to something that they, that they think is wrong. Uh, uh, or they really dislike you know, their boss, and they, and they want to embarrass him. Uh, so if you asked, who, who should be in charge of the, of the boundary? Who should be in charge comprehensively of deciding what's published and what's not? Nobody. Uh, I would argue there is absolutely no one you should trust to do that. Uh, that and in fact, there's no one competent to do that. The president and his people are not entitled to tell us what we ne need to know in order to hold them accountable um, as voters or as participants in the political society. And someone like me is not uh, competent or accountable for protecting our national security. And so what happens, actually, is that there is a competition along the boundaries in which they try to keep secrets, and we try to find them out. And then almost universally in the journalistic world, uh, when we find out things, we think hard about whether to publish them or not, and we draw lines. And so the Snowden papers, which he gave me, uh, he asked me and the other two journalists that he gave them to to make decisions about what we thought was in the public interest to disclose, and we published some things and we held other things back, uh, and those were hard questions. And we always did that after conversations with the responsible officials who could make a case about what bad thing would happen if this thing got published, uh, and sometimes we said yes and sometimes we said no. Is, and so is that ultimately, I think you've given a really good description of what the process is, is that ultimately the best process there is? Least worst, I guess I would say. Uh, I. I I don't think that you, as citizens, should want to trust any entity to make this decision uh, in general. And you really do have to think of it as a system, right? It, it's, you could go to your corner store and say, how dare you set the price of milk? I mean, milk's really important. My kid needs milk. 
who gave you the right, uh, but that grocer is setting the price on this bottle of milk on this day in this location. There's a lot of milk out there. Uh, the, the journalists don't have access to all the classified secrets or, all the, yeah. or a, any other kind of secrets. It actually, it, it, there has to be a fairly extraordinary thing that happens before you can even entertain the question about whether I should publish something, which is to say somebody has to decide to take a very big risk, increasingly a risk in recent years, uh, uh, at minimum of losing a job, uh, potentially a prosecution, civil penalties, even if you, even if the charges are dropped as they were, for example, against Tom Drake, uh, his, yeah. he is ruined. Uh, he was a top official at the NSA and he's now uh, working behind the Genius Bar at an Apple store and he's broke, uh, and, and he wasn't, Convicted of any felony, uh, so I mean they, they have they have to take a huge risk in order to to tell you, uh, and that by its nature in these unauthorized leaks is a very rare thing. Can I just add yes. one point? I agree with everything you said, and what we have also seen is an escalation in this country again post 9/11, where you just say the word national security, and the judiciary and the legislative. Checks and balances that should typically be in place about that, about to going to your question of who makes those decisions, they've completely backed off. We have been so cowed. If anyone just says this is in the national security realm, forget it. Then you know there's there's this impenetrable wall which you can't. It's really really hard unless you have people like Snowden or others that want to come out and, and hand it to you because you're shut down completely by the judiciary and, and their decisions. So let's, let's move to Sony. We'll come back to both Snowden and to WikiLinks in just a second, but let's m move to Sony for just a moment. 100 terabytes stolen, um, wiper malware installed. Um, Ralph, was it important? I didn't do it, I swear to God. <laughs> Could you um, have done it? You just wanted to see that movie. Could I have done it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I mean, I've been saying that, that the, uh, yeah, I wanted to see that movie so bad. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it really isn't. Like I said, as you guys saw, it's, it's really not all that hard to fool people. Like I said, the target today is, is, is the human factor. It's not so much the technology. Because no matter what kind of security and technology you have in place, if you say yes, allow this, then you're in. Should Sony have been able to avert this attack? Were there things, simple things they could have done that would have made this impossible? Not impossible. There's no such thing. Um, there's no such thing as 100% security. There's no such thing as full protection. Um, there's no such thing as could you have prevented a targeted attack of that nature because they, they were definitely targeted. Um, however, the fact that it took them at least 229 days to find out that they got hacked, that's, that's really the problem. The impact of these hacks have to do directly with how quickly they are determined to be hacked. So um, they could have done a lot better. Was it North Korea? I don't believe it was North Korea. Um, I believe, if anything, North Korea had little or no involvement whatsoever with the Sony hack. And I, I'm sure I have hmm. friends nope. in, the, in, the, uh, in, in the federal government who say different and that they have different uh, proof or things that I have may not seen, but the truth of the matter is is that an IP address coming from Korea is not proof. In many civil cases that I've been a part of, an IP address is not enough. So to say that you've got an IP address in some software that, first of all, all hackers reuse everybody's software. Every time that we come across some sort of malware, we 
take it apart and we use that software again. So just because it's, it may be a software that was used in a Korean attack, uh, that's not enough. And, and um, again, neither one of the two things uh, that the FBI has uh, come out with are not enough to, to tell any of, I'm not the only expert who said it's not North Korea. Uh, there's a lot of other factors that prove to be, or, or at least go in the direction of a completely different scenario for that hack. So let's, 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 there's so much to say about Sony, including the fact it wasn't just embarrassing emails, it was 47,000 people's social security numbers that were hacked. I mean, I'm presuming that no one would seek to put those on the web or publish those. I mean, we have a sense that that's not okay to publish, that that kind of information is not public information, doesn't serve a benefit. That's, that's a great point, but they have been. WikiLeaks has released uh, a lot of, uh, most of those documents. Now they say it's, it's the full archives. Um, uh, as soon as they went up, I looked at them. I have the actual full archives. Yeah. Um, I was working for the LA Times and they wanted me to make it searchable. So I did, um, when the hacks happened. But, uh, and, and there are some things that I find kind of interesting that are not in the WikiLeaks archives. Um, there are just certain emails that are not there. There, there's, there's certain things that I, I can't find in the WikiLeaks archives. So have they been, you know, redacted on purpose by uh, Assange? I don't know. Um, but the point is, I do believe in responsible disclosure versus full disclosure. Um, that's a, that's, that's a, a term that we've been using in the hacker world that has to do with exploits. We find a vulnerability in something, do we just put it out there, and then anybody who's, who's running Mac OS gets hacked? Or do we contact Mac, you know, Apple and say, hey, fix this before we put it out? So there, there's an argument to be made, and many of you have made it, that the government needs to be transparent in certain ways under certain circumstances. But does that same need for transparency so that we as citizens can make decisions, does that apply to private companies? I mean, did we need to know that what they had to say about Angelina Jolie or about President Obama's movie Watching Habits or any of that stuff? I mean, is there an argument? Julian Assange made an argument, 30,000 documents he posted, and he said it's a multinational company. It shows us how they operate, and it's... It's fair. What do you all think about that? Well, there's been lots of great journalism done about uh, powerful institutions other than government. And lots of clear public interest stories to be done about these huge multinational entities that have such a big impact on our lives. Uh, I haven't studied the Sony thing, so I don't actually see immediately a whole lot of those stories in the Sony hack. But if you, if you had talked about, uh, if you talk about another WikiLeaks, an early WikiLeaks case in which uh, they uh, exposed internal documents of, uh, of a Swiss bank that demonstrated money laundering and helped lead to major U.S. government action uh, mm -hmm. and, a, and a huge change of policy by the Swiss government. I, I'd certainly say that was valid. And an Icelandic bank also. Mm -hmm. um, that was one and, of the early and, ones. And, and, and in, in fact, under Icelandic law, you couldn't actually publish this material in Iceland. So on the air, one evening, the announcer said, I can't tell you where to go to get this information, and I can't tell it to you, but I can tell you, you can go to WikiLeaks.org, which is a, a, not, a, you know, a jurisdiction not hemmed in by, national, uh, by, by the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, it's a very powerful moment in the, in the early part of the film. Let, let's, let's, let's move to WikiLeaks. Um, Remind us all about the, <clears throat> that first big Iraqi gunship attack and, 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 and what was 
part of that treasure trove of documents and what was released? Well, ultimately, I mean, uh, WikiLeaks was an organization that was designed to be um, to be two things: to have a, a, a publication mechanism, which is maybe its most important function, that was out of any outside of any kind of national jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was also supposed to have a leaking mechanism that would be anonymous. You could leak to WikiLeaks anonymously. Now, we can argue about whether or not ultimately there was a relationship between Julian Assange and then Bradley, now Chelsea Manning. But, um, but that's the way WikiLeaks was supposed to work. And one of the most dramatic things that, that WikiLeaks published early on was a video that they titled Collateral Murder. They ultimately showed a, a, a long portion of it and then that had a, 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 an edited version. And, and you see uh, an American gunship firing on some Iraqi civilians and ultimately um, killing a number of them, including, I believe, was it an, uh, a Reuters reporter? Reuters cameraman. Yeah. Reuters cameraman. And, and in, in addition, and also a wounding a young man um, and, uh, uh, and firing on people who came to rescue these people who were wounded. And it, was a, it was a horrific um, video and, and one which, uh, you know, whose disclosure I, I, I fully endorse because it shows the, the cost of war. And that's what initially made Julian Assange and, and WikiLeaks famous. It came, um, we believe, from... Uh, Chelsea Manning, as did a number of um, caches of logs, the Afghan war logs about the uh, war in Afghanistan, the Iraq war logs about uh, the war in Iraq, and then the State Department cables. So there's a, in the, in the film, the Guardian editor, whose name I can't remember, Davies, Russ maybe? Well, Russ Bridger was the editor, but Nick Davis but Nick is the guy who found Assange and brought him in in order to give him uh, cover. And he is deeply troubled by the fact, he tells you, what, that, that Julian Assange is essentially not interested in re redacting the documents at all. Right. Uh, I, I think that's not entirely true. I think there was, I think Julian had some misgivings, but clearly he was also a very, uh, he was full of bravado, which of course gave him the brass balls to do what he did, and also would, you know, came from a place that was a leak absolutism. Uh, and it is true that despite, you know, everybody, including Nick Davis and others, uh, urging him to redact the Afghan war logs, which was the first big leak, he ultimately, while he did hold some back, he leaked a lot of names that could have gotten people into trouble. At the end of the day, how do you see Julian Assange? You spent a lot of time thinking about him, talking to him, Talking to others about him. I didn't him. spend a lot well, of time talking to him, but I did talk did to him in some extended conversations. And uh, you know, I, I think uh, I think the WikiLeaks moment was a terribly important moment and a terribly valuable one. I think Julian's problem was that um, he wasn't a very good listener, and it's not surprising really that somebody from where he came from would do things and to make mistakes. The problem, in my view, was that Julian was arrogant and didn't learn sufficiently well from his mistakes. So it's too bad, in a way, that he was the character. And yet, if he hadn't been the character who he was, the sort of bold, arrogant man that he was, then uh, the leaks probably wouldn't have happened in the first place. And is he ever going to leave the embassy? And I, when I say leaks, let's be careful here, because he was not the leaker. No. Right. He was the publisher. He was uh, the publisher. Not the leaker. And, um, and I think it's one of the reasons why... Um, well, Chelsea Bradley Manning is 
been sentenced to prison for 35 years. Right. A very, very, very long sentence, unjustly long, in my view. Why? Why unjustly long? What was the damage, ultimately, that Chelsea Manning did by leaking those documents? And frankly, what was the benefit that we obtained? I'd say, in this case, the benefit far outweighed the damage. Even Hillary Clinton, in um, I think it's David Sanger's book, admitted that when it came, for example, to um, uh, you know, uh, the case of Tunisia and, and, in some ways, the Arab Spring, that a lot of what was leaked in those State Department cables became extraordinarily valuable in terms of pushing things forward in a way that destabilized a lot of autocratic regimes. That's just one example. But I think that um, there was a tremendous amount of value in that material that was leaked, uh, even if Chelsea Manning didn't give sufficient thought to whom he was leaking or what might happen to those documents when they were leaked. Do you see it that way, Valerie? And not only that, I, I, when this story first came out, I thought, what is a 22-year-old, pretty junior military, I, I, what, was he a corporal? What was his? No, he was no. less than a corporal. He was a, 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 he was a, a specialist. He was a specialist. In any specialist. case, he had such access um, to all kinds of things that I found coming from my background where compartmentalization is very important, I found astonishing, and the onus should be on the government. When you classify everything, then nothing is secret. We always used to joke around in the CIA, the best way you keep a secret is, you know, put admin on the cable, because, you know, who wants to read that? But if you put uh, top secret and Scooby-Doo after it and all that stuff, then, you know, you got all kinds of people uh, well, this longing. Was the, this was the post-9-11 world, right? Yeah. That, uh, that the, the silos were supposed to come down. And, that's, and that is indeed the answer to the question of what this very junior officer had access to the whole treasure trove, yeah. right? Right, I mean, so I, I, I for sure don't speak for Julian Assange as he has um, once said publicly. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, let's take it from his point of view. He would say the arrogance here is in Alex saying what the public, saying what the public shouldn't know, doesn't get to know, uh, or the arrogance is me wanting to play gatekeeper uh, with the Snowden archives and let out little bits of it at a time, uh, according to my own uh, right. life. He at least has a, a universal principle, which is all information is equal and should all be out right. there. I mean, I tend to think one should be suspicious of uh, universal principles uh, when, when taken uh, <laughs> of you <know>. anything. <laughs> <laughs> off the cliff. But, uh, but he has a principled idea that, that radical transparency is what enables uh, power to move you know, sort of from the elites to the people that we get to make decisions. And even if there's a certain amount of editorial comment in the way they edit the Apache gunship video, so they call, the title of their release was a Collateral Murder, as most of you will remember. Uh, part of, you know, so, so what do you see from that? You see, uh, first of all, that war is grotesque. I mean, that it just, it just, it's inherent in war that you're killing people, and you get this bird's eye view. And, uh, and, and well, Apache's eye view of what's happening. You also you get a sense of what the rules of engagement allow. This idea that well, this one's down, but he might not be dead. Let, let's circle back and force and some more. The attitude of the gunners and you, right. as you hear yeah, the conversation. Yeah, the attitude. But also, uh, you know, there were there were U.S. government claims about uh, the Reuters camera crew mm -hmm. uh, right. as, as having behaved in some way that transgressed the norms of journal journalism and put them in danger, and that they were 
in a threatening posture with cameras mm -hmm. that looked like they could be shoulder-fired missiles. The video disproves that pretty, pretty convincingly, decisively. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I think that the um, coming back to Bart's point, and I think he's right in terms of the way he represents mm -hmm. Julian. But uh, you know, when it came to that first leak of the Afghan war logs, there was a consideration about would people get hurt. Mm -hmm. And that is an important consideration. You can be radical, radically transparent if you want, but then you have to be prepared to accept the consequences that people may die. Does it matter what the reason or the motive of either the leaker or the publisher of the leaker is? Or, or are we willing to say that that's immaterial? No, I think it is important. And I think part of what we're talking about here is establishing rules and effect through trust. In other words, and it's establishing a sense of trust because only then can you devise rules which are ultimately personal judgments as to, uh, as to what might be accepted by um, a broader population? Okay, so I know, I know you were looking for disagreement. I think I, I, I would respectfully disagree. If, if, if what you're answering is, does the motive of the leaker or the motive of the publisher matter? I think absolutely not. I, I'm indifferent to it. I, I don't care whether someone tells me something because they want to stab their boss in the back, because they want to advance their career, uh, or, for, or because... Uh, they, they have the purest motives of the public interest at heart. If it's, if it's true information, if I can verify it, if, if it raises an important public policy question, I absolutely don't care why the person leaked it. In fact, people with great motives who sincerely believe that they're doing good could say, um, I think we should publish the recipe for, uh, for the cheap and easy um, H-bomb because that will level out the global superpowers and nobody will want to, you know, we, we think mm -hmm. it's a good idea. Uh, and, and they're operating out of idealism, and I don't think you should publish that. Uh, and likewise, um, they could, they could, you well, could have someone complicit in torture reveal the U.S. torture program, and I would say that's a great thing. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. you're talking about the motive of the leaker. Uh, I would I would also include that. It, I, I would also say that it's important for the motive of the publisher to be somewhat transparent. In other words, to, to explain to people why you are publishing some things and why not others. Mm -hmm. I think that's perfectly legitimate. It's how you earn people's trust. To, I think that's to important. Alex's point of yeah. trust, this is what's been eroded deeply. And the case, someone mentioned it very briefly, of Thomas Drake, if, if you don't know, he was a high-ranking FBI official. NSA. Who, NSA. NSA, one of them, sorry. Uh, NSA official who was deeply concerned about... Uh, Oh, just mismanagement and, and, and corruption in a massively expensive computer program that they were putting together, not to mention the inherent perhaps illegalities of it. And he went to his superiors, and they brushed him off, and he kept going back until finally he went, uh, I think he spoke to a Baltimore Sun reporter initially, and as, you know, the end game is the FBI tossed his house and he's working at the Genius Bar at Apple. So that's where trust, you know, really are all secrets equal um, just because they're embarrassing. Um, that's where that conversation needs to be around. And there aren't very many adult conversations. If so, we can explore yes. just a little bit further, since we want to have some fun disagreeing a little bit, I would also say about the leaker that at least from my perspective, I am interested in the motive of the leaker. I may choose to ignore it, but I'm interested in the motive. For example, uh, you know, in the Enron case, for example, a lot of, of people, um, you know, there was a lot of short selling mm -hmm. going on. And indeed, there was a lot of um, what ultimately became criminal activity in, involving some of the lawyers who were plaintiff's lawyers trying to get money out of, of the Enron collapse. 
some of the material that I was able to obtain was leaked to me by those people. And it didn't stop me from putting it in the movie, but, um, but it made me wonder what they were holding back and why they were giving me that material, because I think it helped my judgment about what was going on. Right, so now here you're talking about the sort of the, the journalistic art and the, and, the, and the art of verification. I agree with you. I care a lot about knowing the motive. I want to know what the motive is in order for me to figure out how to verify truth But if it's self-aggrandizement, too bad. You, I, you I, might. I will form a judgment about that character as a moral human being. But in terms of what I care about, in terms of whether the, whether the information should be made public, I'm indifferent to the, to the motive. The motive is important to me in order to figure out, are they being truthful? What are they leaving out? Who would have a piece of this story that that person doesn't want to tell me? We're going to talk for another five or six minutes, and then we'll open it up to questions. Let's talk about Edward Snowden. Um, and I want to also do a little compare and contrast of how Julian Assange and Edward Snowden are alike or different. That'll be for the, uh, the, the uh, graduate seminar. But first, <laughs> Edward Snowden, um, tell us about uh, his contacting you. Tell us about the – there was a code. He actually had a code name originally, I understand. Well, look, Snowden had – to take extraordinary precautions in order to do what he did. He is working in a very sensitive job at the NSA. Uh, he is exfiltrating and copying files that he's not supposed to be able to do uh, in quite large volume. And this is, a this is over a period of many months. And during that same period, he is in contact with three different journalists, uh, trying to talk to them without being surveilled by the world's most efficient surveillance agency. So that was a pretty tricky uh, thing to pull off. He made contact with uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, who initially was unable to communicate with him because the only way you could communicate with Snowden at that time, uh, and mostly now as well, is if you're able to use encryption to scramble the contents of the communication and, mm -hmm. and tools of anonymity to make it hard to figure out who's talking to whom. And I happen to know how to do that stuff, and so I was sort of eligible to talk to him. From, a, from an illicit past, yes. Right. Right. And yes, <laughs> uh, and, and, and because I was, I've been a reporter for a long time <laughs> with Covering confidential issues, sources, yes. and, uh, and it was important to understand those tools. But yeah, he, 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 he chose various handles for himself, and he gave one to me. And so were you at first, the first question has got to be, is this guy legit, right? Right, well, you the first, that was the first question, and that was a question that went on for a long period of time. He was trying to figure out whether he could trust, I'll just talk for myself, he was trying to figure out whether he could trust me uh, whether, uh, and whether I was going to have the guts to do these stories if I satisfied myself that they were true and whether the mainstream media was even capable of challenging authority, which he had his doubts about. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, you were deciding whether to trust and him. And I was deciding, um, is this guy crazy, a sophisticated liar, um, a <laughs> fantasist? Uh, does he misunderstand what he has access to and he's characterizing it completely wrongly? Mm. Are these documents authentic? And even if they're authentic, are they true? Because you can have authentic documents that s state things that are simply incorrect. Uh, and this is all within a realm of, of uh, code word classified material primarily, sort of above top secret. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I had to figure out whether, whether he was for real. And of all the uninvited guests in my inbox, um, almost all the amazing tips that you get um, out of the blue as a journalist, you can dismiss pretty quickly um, as being in one of those uh, not real categories. Um, his was always very plausible, 
Uh, and I would ask him questions where I knew 80% of the answer. And he would ace the 80%. And then he would sometimes have most or all of the rest of it in ways that fit lots of things that I knew and hadn't been published anywhere. Uh, sometimes he said, I don't know. I like that answer. Uh, that, that adds credibility. Or I would rephrase him and say, so you mean this? And he would say, no, I mean this and this. I don't know that. And so all he, that. he gained your trust. He, he gained my trust, which did not mean that I automatically accepted the documents as authentic and true, but uh, it, it, it helped a lot. Much has come forward. Is there, is there much more from those documents we don't yet know? Well, there's more from the documents that the public doesn't know and that I don't intend to publish. Because uh, if, if, you're, if you're down to, I, I, the best way I can illustrate this is a, um, is, is, is a fanciful example, because I don't really want to give clues about what it is. Uh, but suppose the government had placed thought reading earrings on the mistress of the emperor of Mars. Uh, and by doing so, had detected uh, well, the impending invasion, and that, yeah. you know, we, we would actually, I, I think people, if I wrote that story, would say, well, that's really cool, I didn't know they could do that, and I'm glad they're doing it, and it's too bad they can't do it anymore, because you just fucking blew it uh, uh, by writing the story. Those, that's the story I don't want to write. The story I do want to write is about the boundaries, uh, about the, about the, uh, about the U.S. government taking power, especially vis-a-vis -vis its own citizens, uh, to whom it's supposed to be accountable, uh, that we don't know about. So, I, so if they say, for example, in 2009, that they've only used Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which is coming up for renewal in the next six weeks, uh, they've only used it 23 times in 2009. You don't have to worry. We're being so careful with it. Mm -hmm. And then you find out that it took four of those orders to get a trillion telephone records. Uh, <laughs> Uh, then, is that then, a real number? Is that a real number? That's an actual number. But that's, a, that's a pretty good approximation of the number of, uh, of call data records that they got with these FISA orders with Section 215. Uh, you needed to do it you know, quarterly, so four of them. Uh, now, if you went home and you know, asked your kid if he ate the candy and he says, I only had a few of them, and it turned out he had a trillion, you would probably feel that you'd been misled. So I mean, that, that uh, writing, <laughs> writing a story uh, about that, about, about the US government doing things uh, to us that it won't tell us about, this idea of a one-way mirror where it's more opaque to us and we're more transparent to it, that's something I want to write about. Because I'm a television journalist and we have to reduce everything down to the little bitty. So is Edward Snowden a patriot, or is Edward Snowden I, I just uh, don't really want to. I know play you don't want to. I, 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 if I didn't think that it was really important to uh, to make public at least some of the stuff that he that he gave to us, I wouldn't have published it. The Washington Post wouldn't have published it. I wouldn't be writing a book about it now. Uh, and I think I think he has done a huge amount of good. Uh, I think that you've. The purpose of information, we all say information is power, uh, it, it's essential to the transparent functioning of markets and to allowing commercial forces to, to work the way they're supposed to. And so because people are more interested in privacy now, and because of his disclosures, uh, Google and Yahoo and Apple and Microsoft and lots of other companies, Facebook, uh, are spending collectively probably over $100 million to batten down their security and their privacy practices and to actually to thwart 
the, the activities of their own government's intelligence agencies uh, that they think go beyond the pale. Courts are able to hear cases on the merits um, as opposed to dismissing them for lack of standing because the plaintiffs couldn't prove the thing was actually happening. Now they can prove it's happening. Now we get to test whether it's constitutional. Congress gets to debate whether Section 215 of the Patriot Act should be renewed on the basis of knowing how they were actually using it. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether Snowden is what other camp you put him in, traitor or whistleblower. We now know this information, and we can't, we don't have the luxury anymore of pretending that we don't know. So, you know, rather than chasing after the shiny ball of Snowden, that doesn't matter. It's the issue and the conversation that we need to have about security versus privacy. I mean, everybody wants to talk about Snowden, but who would you who rather cares? hold accountable, the U.S. government or some guy um, who used to live in Hawaii and now lives in Montana? And yet we come back to where we began, which is in order to function, the government has to be able to keep some secrets, and there have to be some rules in place to keep those secrets or, or we're in chaos. If everyone is telling everything they know, we... we Right, whether it be corporately, so there have to be some rules. Yeah, but there has to be a balance. Obviously, the government is keeping too many secrets, right. far too many secrets, yeah. and so there's a blowback, and I think that's a good thing. It goes back to what you said about trust too. Uh, you know, right now we don't trust mm -hmm. uh, the government because for many reasons, there's mm -hmm. just so many things that have gone down that we just fail to trust mm -hmm. those in power. You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from Valerie Plame on secrecy and power. Do you have questions? Yes, you do. Here you go. Good evening, and thank you for this uh, very interesting panel. Um, I've heard various uh, names tossed about Snowden, obviously, Thomas Drake. I'm curious about your thoughts on Jeffrey Sterling, though. Thank you. Who wants to take it? Actually, it's uh, kind of in your Yeah, yeah I, I, I know Jeffrey. Um, so what is of most interest to me is how the government has pursued uh, James Risen. Uh, he's, uh, allegedly, Sterling was a source for Risen and all of that. What we have seen, which is very curious, is in the Obama administration, a much... Uh, a, a ramped up efforts to lock, you know, find these leaks and go after it. We know that they were looking at what was that? The journalist records of is it AT and T? Was yes. that yeah? So it's a big question. I'm not going to speak specifically to the the Sterling case because that wouldn't be fair. Um, but it's it, it's it the broader issue of how far do you push? journalists for their sources. I mean, in, in my case, there is the journalist for the former journalist for the New York Times, Judy Miller, who went to jail for 80-some days because she refused to disclose to the uh, grand jury her source of how she got my name and so forth. So it's, uh, it's complex, I think, is the best way to put but it. But fair to say the Obama administration has been extremely aggressive in prosecuting Alex. Yes, and particularly extremely aggressive in going after journalists. Yeah. Far mm -hmm. more aggressive than the Bush administration ever was. Well, one, of, one of the interesting things about the journalist part is that uh, 
The director of national intelligence um, has used uh, the word collaborator uh, to describe the people who mm -hmm. received Snowden documents and then wrote stories about them, uh, or co uh, co various U.S. They've used co-conspirator, collaborator, and uh, I'm not fellow be, traveler might be confederates, <laughs> but these these are actually words that have legal meaning. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and the, freighted. And freighted. There's also there's also a general legal issue here, which uh, which which has big consequences. There is actually not a law in the United States which on its face, with very few exceptions, says that you're not allowed to disclose something to the public. Right? I mean, that, that, there, there is, there is a law like that in the nuclear field, mm -hmm. nuclear secrets mm -hmm. and certain uh, intelligence identities and that sort of thing. But in general, uh, there's no law that says you can't disclose it to the public or to, uh, or to a newspaper. Uh, you have, a, you have a contract in with, that you signed promising not to do so if you have access to classified information, but not a law. And so what they've done is they've interpreted the ex this extremely broad Espionage Act mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, as the vehicle for prosecution. And what that means is it equates disclosing something to the public uh, for what you and the journalists involved believe to be the public interest as the same thing as espionage Trade. deliberately harming your own country by helping an enemy. Uh, and uh, that also has consequences for the kinds of, uh, of uh, surveillance authorities they can use against me, uh, mm -hmm. against us. They can, uh, because it's considered a counterintelligence matter, they can use every secret national security surveillance tool. They can get secret subpoenas. They oh, can get all the phone records. You. Of, There's uh, no question about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've become more interesting than I used to be. Uh, he wouldn't leave his backpack out in the other room, I just want to tell you now, right? right? Can't take any chances. Let's see if there's another question. Yes, sir, right here. Uh, thank you. This is a great discussion. Um, this question is for Mr. Gibney. Uh, after you uh, directed uh, We Steal Secrets, uh, Assange uh, put up uh, on his website a list of he, – he had read the script and he put up a list of hundreds of uh, uh, inaccuracies in the text. And I wondered if you – two questions. I wonder if you read that and responded <laughs> to it. Secondly, uh, did you go into that movie with an attitude about Assange and did it change? Um. Second part first, yeah, I went in um, to the film with an idea that Julian that it was a David a simple David and Goliath tale, and it was going to be all about Julian Assange, and I came out where half the film was about Chelsea Manning, uh, and and Julian Assange to me became a much more complex figure. You're referring to the annotated transcript that Julian Assange published, and yes, I did read it. Uh, I didn't agree with it, but he published it. I would note that when he first published it, um, it was taken from an audio tape from the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, all the uh, conversations from Chelsea Manning were printed on screen, but were not voiced. Mm -hmm. So the um, Julian likes to believe in scientific journalism, and according to scientific journalism, he was now scientifically refuting what we had done. But because it was an audio tape, not a videotape, all of Chelsea Manning's dialogue was left out. So it rendered it somewhat inaccurate. Mm. But, Other you know, questions? I don't have an issue with the fact that he published it. It's up, up to him. Uh, let's go right back, right here. Yes. Do you feel like with uh, secrecy being more exposed in, in the... 
Now, do you feel like there'll be more precautions for journalists in the government? More what? I didn't hear that the noun there. But the more, more what for journalists in the government? Precautions. Precautions. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, so the government is working hard to plug leaks or the idea or the possibility of leaks. Uh, there are all kinds of you know administrative, operational, and technological precautions being put in to reduce access of the kind that Chelsea Manning had to uh, an interagency system that had secret cables in it um, and uh, and you know NSA access control systems and so on. But there's also been a directive put out by the Director of National Intelligence, uh, among others, which says, obviously, don't tell journalists classified things. But it also says, anytime you meet, encounter, talk to a journalist about anything, for any reason, whether or not it's classified, if you're talking about the weather at a party, you must log it and report it and put it into our system. Uh, 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 and you may not speak to a journalist about anything, including anything unclassified, without a public affairs officer being present. Uh, that is a very dangerous thing and an, and an unjustifiable thing uh, to do in terms of balancing the public interest in information. Uh, we'll try. We have four minutes, so if we're quick, we can do two more questions. Yes, over here on the aisle. I, um, thank you guys so much. This is so interesting. This is for Mr. Gibney. I just wondered, and this relates to... I guess secrecy in the idea of the documentary, The Jinx, at the end, when the guy admits that he did kill these people. I just wondered, is that something you think can be fairly used against him? I'm curious what that, how you feel about that as far as it was a film. But well, yeah. I've read about, I've, I've seen, that's a spoiler alert for me because uh, <laughs> I've only seen episodes one and two. So <laughs> Thanks a lot. Now I have read about, I have read about that and the fact that, that, uh, that Mr. Durst said something on a radio microphone while he was in the bathroom. But I think, you know, a lawyer would probably tell you that that could be interpreted a number of ways. Wasn't Fair certain. to use it in the film, by the way? Hmm? I mean, if you had someone you were interviewing who had their mic on still, is that fair enough to you? Depends. depends. It's, in law school, they taught us that was the answer to most questions. It depends. Yes. Um, so we have a, an election coming up, and so this is going to be talked about a lot. And it, it, it seems from observing that most people that have spent a lot of time in politics and on Capitol Hill eventually tend in a certain direction. And you, you assume that they, don't, they start off as rational people and, and you know, probably like the rest <laughs> of us, but then end up in this, in this other spot where they all you know, have a similar viewpoint. And so the assumption that it... it would kind of lead to is that at, once people start to learn about the real world, about what, what the rest of us don't see and what's really going on out there, there's just so much scary stuff going on that they all kind of end up on this other camp and, and justify all these, these crazy things that we're debating today. Um, as you guys, I mean, obviously you can't speak to specifics of it, but as, as you spend time there, is that the reality there or is there some other mechanism that, that it creates that? Uh, um, I, let me just speak to, say, the President of the United States, who, whoever it is that is running. Um, I, think, I think it is true to say that once that person is in office and they're getting daily briefings of the terrorist matrix, and you can imagine, um, as, as we've seen every single president literally age 
uh, in a matter of months, really, of being in office. Um, but that doesn't, while the threats are real and, and in some cases truly existential to uh, our way of life and our democracies, it doesn't, what I think we're all talking about up here, up at the stage this evening, is what is the right balance in a healthy democracy. Um, it doesn't in any way take away from the threats, but do we want to feed into that? Um, do we want to become who they are? And I, most Americans say no. You know, uh, that, that we cannot, uh, I'm not a proponent in the, the Cheney 1% doctrine, which is that no matter, uh, it, you assess the threat, if there's even a 1% chance that, that it could be harmful to American interests, we respond in an overwhelming fashion. Well, in real life, I think that there are risks all the time. And I don't want to live, for me personally, I don't want to live in a society that is there is an absolute guarantee that there will never be a terrorist action, for instance. But then, you know, that becomes North Korea, right? There's no guarantee, you know, that, that's, there are no guarantees in real life. I actually think that what makes all this interesting is that you spoke of rationality. I, I think that most people in positions of authority in these, in these organizations, especially where some of what they do is secret, uh, are responding rationally uh, to the incentives and to the information available to them uh, and to the constraints of the debate that's available to them uh, and are more often than not trying to do the right thing for the country and yet uh, will do things that lots of people would profoundly disagree with uh, if it were subjected to public debate. That's just the nature of, mm. if you're in a job where you're, to play off that, where, you, where your job is to, is to uh, prevent bad stuff from happening, if your job is security, uh, there's no tool you won't want. I understand why they'd want that. I understand why they want every single program they've got at the NSA, every, no matter how intrusive. Uh, I probably would want that too in their shoes, but it's the nature of a police state uh, to give the police every single thing they want. Uh, there has to be, and we don't here in this country, but maybe we've given them more than we would have done uh, had we known the full outlines. I do think there's also a very interesting passage in Daniel Ellsberg's book, his, his autobiography, where he talks about the psychological process of secrecy, that as you get read in to the world of secrets, you begin to assume that you have a kind of superiority of knowledge that makes you better than the people who aren't read into the world of mm. secrets, that you have a kind of superior knowledge, and that gives you in a fundamental way a sort of contempt, not, not, not aggressively set out, but that it makes you feel that you are entitled to decisions that are not allowed to be disclosed and that your judgment is better than um, the judgment of citizens or the press and so forth and so on. And I do think secrets uh, over-classification for that reason is terribly dangerous. Mm. Well, that seems like a very good place to leave this conversation. I know there are lots more of you with questions, but we're out of time. Thank you to the panel. Thank you. Really excellent. Good job.